0: Thanks for tuning in to Pod22. I'm your host, Philip Baird. On this week's episode, I have the pleasure of welcoming my close friend, Iwana Todosia. She's the founder of Komuna Project, a cultural exchange platform that connects a global generation to creative cultures through transformative and regenerative experiences. In 2017, she took a spontaneous trip to Havana that introduced her to two very different stories. The story of Cuba, written by mass tourism, and a glimpse into a more authentic story of Cuba that lived just below the surface an open, wildly creative, and incredibly rich culture that most never get to experience. Experiencing Cuba for the first time in that duality was what planted the seed for Comuna Travel. It opened our eyes to seeing the travel industry as a powerful platform that can facilitate meaningful connection and transformative experiences that nourish and enhance both sides of the travel experience, local and traveler. Since 2017, Iwana has created and led several cross-cultural ex- exchange experiences to Cuba, Mexico, and Romania. Her travel companions find inspiration by pushing their boundaries and engaging with locals, striving to passionately preserve and enhance their cultural and age-old traditions for the future, from the underground art scenes to artisan communities, farmers, and traditional healers. Motivated by the recent pandemic, Comuna Travel has been evolving into the Comuna Project, extending their exchange experience to an online space. In collaboration with our local partners and indigenous healers of Oaxaca, Mexico, the Kumuna project has been offering four-week virtual immersive retreat sessions called the Ceremonia Sessions. Iwana embodies all the qualities of an amazing guide. Always driven by her passion, she seeks creativity, beauty, and new experiences in the most unlikely of places. In turn, she shares these experiences, perspectives, and wisdom to those around her. During the live show, I shared a video from Kumuna. You'll find a link to her Vimeo channel if you'd like to watch it. I hope you enjoy this episode. Today I'm
1: joined by Iwana. She's the entrepreneur and the founder of Comuna Project. Um, Iwana, thank you for coming on the pod. How's it going? Well,
2: thanks for
1: having me. I'm so excited. <laughs> Great. Uh, usually, this, this this is the part of the podcast where I ask people where they're located right now. Uh, obviously, we're friends, so I, I know you're in Montreal. Yeah. But uh, for for those people who don't know you, can you tell us a bit about your background?
2: Yeah. So I'm in Montreal right now, where I'm currently grounded for the last year, mostly. My background as in cultural or...
1: Yeah, yeah <laughs> c- cultural, cultural, because uh, you're, you're, you know, you're a uh, mixed. Uh, there's a lot of things happening. So, you know, like, where, where did you grow up uh, before coming to Montreal? So
2: uh, I was born in Romania and uh, five years old. I immigrated to Canada with my parents and my sister. And I grew up in Northern BC in a town called Prince George. That's um, a forestry, lumber, pulp mill industry town. We settled there because uh, before we immigrated, my dad was, and from the early '90s, was uh, sort of like a seasonal worker in the forestry industry. And the main reason, one of the main reasons why we we left Romania, right? in the early nineties after communism fell was as a result of the socioeconomic condition there. It was in a state of collapse, essentially economic collapse after communism fell and political chaos as well. And I needed medical attention that we couldn't receive there. And there was one MRI in the country and it wasn't working. And I needed an MRI in order to get an operation and doctors there kind of like knew what was needed, but didn't have the infrastructure available to, be able to do that. So because uh, Canada at the time was very friendly to um, immigration from former Eastern Bloc, uh, communist countries in the Soviet Union, my, my dad was able to sponsor us because he had been in Canada for five years at that point, it was 1995, to sponsor us kind of on like a emergency, like family reunification type grounds. I don't know exactly what it was under, but yeah. So within like a few months, we left Romania and came to Canada. And that's where I grew up was Prince George, Northern BC.
1: Nice. And, and what were your <laughs> fondest memories of, of uh, Prince George of BC?
2: Uh, it was an amazing place to grow up because it's surrounded by wilderness. And because my dad worked in forestry, some of my like earliest and most like cherished memories are in nature. It's surrounded by by pine forests and like numerous lakes. And when I was when I was much smaller, um, we would sometimes go. Uh, he would do like contracts, like he, it was silviculture, the, the industry that he worked in, and he would do contracts in the in the spring and summer and fall time. So I have some memories when uh, like shortly after we immigrated of being like out in the forest in his in like his trailer. Uh, with my mom and my sisters and exploring, like, areas I think that I, if I remember correctly, obviously I was very young, but, like, around, like, the Fraser Canyon and just, like, these really beautiful areas. And because, like, my family and the part of Romania that we come from is the Northeastern Carpathian, so my parents were, like, the the first uh, out of the generation from their from their background, from their families that uh, left the village. So they were born as part from pe- peasant backgrounds. And they also both have this very strong connection to being in nature. Um, and I remember like going to parks um, and some kind of like wilderness forest reserves with my mom all the time on hikes and walks and like, foraging a lot with her, um, like mushroom foraging and saskatoon berry foraging. So definitely like in nature are some of my fondest memories. And it's a small town too. So I grew up basically like without having to ever lock our doors and staying out really late and playing, you know, like in the, my schoolyard, which backed onto like a large forest um, in the neighborhood that that I grew up in which was in the center of the town. But it kind of was like a, a bowl and then from from the like inner part of the city it went up and then there's like this huge forest or is it called, called forest for the world which is like connected to the university and had a forestry program so yeah <laughs> the
1: wilderness i, I mean uh, there's a i read a like i saw a map the other day of uh, the most desirable provinces to live in in canada ranked by canadians and bc was by far the top one and, and just listening to you right now uh it's i'm just thinking about that and like oh my god i want to go now yeah. um, <laughs> I
2: now I, I took it for granted for yeah. sure and now obviously as as always happens i appreciate so much that that is where i got to grow up and and become an adolescent and I left at 17 because I was like, I need to get out of here. (laughs) I need to like (laughs) see the world and spread my wings. But yeah, it's definitely definitely a place that like really uh, now I see was a very like animating force behind a lot of like who I am, what I
1: do and everything
2: because of that connection to nature and proximity to it.
1: Mm -hmm. And uh, back then, would you visit Romania a lot while you were uh, living in BC or... Like, did you you go see family uh, every now and then during that time period?
2: Yeah, not at the very beginning. It was a couple years because mostly, like, you know, financial. Mm -hmm. uh, We were able to go back to Romania. Um, The first time that I went back, I was in grade three for a month over spring break. Um, And then I went back again, I think, when I was like 11 or 12 years old. And after that, it became sort of like a very regular occurrence every year, every other year throughout high school. I'm very, very lucky that my, that I was able to spend a lot of my summers um, in my adolescence in Romania. And I would mostly be going back to uh, my grandparents' villages where, uh, where my parents were born and where they grew up and where my grandparents still are and where a lot of my family still is, or like the cities just outside of it where I also have family. So very fortunate that that was part, that was a big part of. Of my life was this in-between between these two very different places and very different cultures and um, it yeah it definitely influences very like cross-cultural identity that at times was was very confusing and was uh, difficult to to sort of like constantly be kind of like a bridge between these two cultures within like my own family and within within my group of friends and that, you know, like when summertime, when people, when kids are like free and that's when you make most of your memories together, I usually wasn't here. or wasn't in Canada. I would be back in Romania and then come back at the end of summer mm-hmm. um, to start the school year again.
1: And I think you went to Romania uh, this past year uh, during the pandemic to see your dad and, and some of your family. What was it like? Like I, you know, I read it in the news about What's the day to day in the u s and, and Canada and European countries? But what was it like in in Romania uh, being there?
2: Good question. <laughs> because, yeah, in, in some ways it was very different. And I so when I left Montreal, i the reason that I went was out of this like kind of like an intuitive calling to go. And it was when Montreal was like at the end of summer and it was still a little bit open. Um, there weren't very much restrictions and Canada was still on the safe list for uh, the Euro- for European Union countries, which meant that there was no restrictions on Canadian uh, passport holders. And so it felt like an, a, an opportunity that I should take. And I kind of felt that there was more restrictions coming at that point. Mm-hmm. So I went and I, w- I was supposed to stay for three months, but I ended up staying for two months. And most, once I got there, there, it was quite open as well. So there was like a little bit of uh, time at the beginning that was like quite free with movement, but even then um, restrictions started to become put in place there as well, like quite aggressively with, um, with lockdowns and curfews and everything. So I spent all of my time, which was the first time actually in my life, even if from when I used to go back in high school and more recently that I only spent my time between my dad's house and he was, um in the, in the southern part of the country, an area called Dobroja near the Black Sea. And my grandparents' villages in the northeastern, part of in the region called Moldova, which is the region of northeastern Romania up the country. And I would spend like 10 to 12, 10 to... 12-14 days up in the villages or and then come back down to my dad's um, but the reason that I came home early was because um, lockdown measures were getting quite um, intense there and I was a little bit worried that I would get stuck or that flights would start getting canceled again so I came home a little bit earlier but it is it was very different in that when I came home, when I came back to Montreal, it was kind of like I didn't realize how much I was absorbing in that, like anxiousness of being in that environment at this time because of like the increased restrictions. And well, now we're in a curfew in Montreal. But at the time, that was the first time I had experienced that when I came back to Montreal, there was this like big sigh of relief and even like entering the the airport. And when I took the Uber back home to, to start my quarantine, I remember looking out of my Uber window and was like, why isn't anybody on the street wearing masks? Because there, there had been a month period already where if you, at this moment you left your house or your car, you had to have a mask on. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was such a, like put things into perspective of, even though it's a global situation that we're experiencing, it's very different in different places, depending on the infrastructure available. It's a country where, um, even though it's been developing a lot since it entered the European Union, it's, it's uh, very plagued by corruption, which is very sad. And that means that a lot of its institutions and especially their healthcare care um, and hospitals uh, are... We're already in a place where it's been the brain drain of doctors for for decades, and the, and like the infrastructure has not been updated. Mm-hmm. So yeah, very different experience
1: in that. In that. Way. Hmm. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. So before we we sort of touched on the subject of of Komuna and, and travel and and how that came to be, I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about your time in university. Like you know at that stage of your life. Uh, I don't. I don't think travel was was something you thought you'd have a career in. Uh, what did you think? Like, what were your, what do you, what were you heading towards uh, at that time uh, time period of your life?
2: I studied. Inter- so, I,
1: where should I start?
2: Right, uh, right when I entered uh, college or right after high school, I moved away from Prince George and I moved to Victoria.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: In my in my mind, I had the plan to go into nursing. My mom's a nurse. In that first trajectory, I thought I would, you know, become a nurse practitioner and do Doctors Without Borders or like, you know, Nurses Without Borders kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I did a year of sciences and was like, oh, no, I'm not very good at this. This is not for me. I guess it was kind of a moment I was reading a lot. I've always loved, loved history and decided to switch into social sciences. And then I did a year of social sciences and transferred to Carleton. In Ottawa for international relations and political economy, which is what I what I graduated um, from my undergrad in, and I thought at the time um, that I would continue on and do a master's, probably somewhere in Europe, and I also wanted to go to go to law school and become a lawyer, possibly an immigration lawyer or human rights. None of that happened, <laughs> but there was always kind of like this. Wanting to uh, see and experience the world, it's definitely, has, it has always been a big part of me. I think since the moment that I got on that airplane at four and, five years, four and a half years old on my way to Canada and, it, like, in, and even like my early childhood experience of like spending, going between Romania and coming back. And when I would go to Romania, kind of travel around Europe when family had, had uh, emigrated to other parts of Europe, um, mm-hmm. definitely influenced me a lot. And I, yeah. So I wanted to work somehow internationally, but I, you know, I thought it was going to be like international development or for like a big organization was like my were my dreams. I didn't ever think in my mind that I would uh, start a travel company and work in the travel industry.
1: Um, well, you know, you, you mentioned human rights lo- lawyer. I know you, you know, you didn't end up being that, but you did go. I think at one point to Greece and volunteer at a refugee camp. Yeah. Um, what What year was this?
2: That was in uh, two thousand March two thousand sixteen.
1: Okay. And and what was that like?
2: It was. There isn't one word that I can say for that. It was uh, intense and eye opening and heartbreaking and beautiful uh, mm. and every possible experience like emotional experience that you can think of. Um, I was there for two weeks and. That was a result of, right. So while I was in university, my last year, I started doing, um, like creative consulting, mostly in social media Mm -hmm. with businesses. And it kind of ended up being, I don't know, just, that's just where the path took me. I started working in like in real estate with real estate development and, um, doing more like digital consulting, marketing type, uh, work. Uh, and after a couple of years of that, I just I went to that because it was something more creative and I felt a creative void in my life right after university was super academic, I like writing 20 page papers every single week. And I also felt like I needed a bit of a break before deciding whether I would continue on with academia or not. Um, so that's what led me to that. But it during that time, before I went on this uh, volunteer trip to Greece, it was during the refugee crisis that mm. kind of started in around 2015. Uh, with the Syrian refugee crisis, and it was, I was consuming a lot of news all the time, even like, obviously, because I was uh, used to studying international relations, like being very um, up to date on like international affairs and current affairs and what's going on in the world. So that was a big part of like, the content that I was seeing was just like, what was going on in the world. And it sparked in me this sort of like sense of despair and angst that i wasn't quite sure where it was coming from in a in a big sense of like a disconnection from myself and the world around me not just the greater world but also like my immediate world around me like my environment and i from that i um i started uh, volunteering with a refugee rec- uh, organization called refugee 613 Just like nothing like uh, super involved, but I did reach out to them and asked how I can get involved in some ways, and started doing um, like design for them pro bono and things like that because that's what I was doing um, through my consulting studio, and that gave me the sense of like, okay, I feel like I'm like you know more connected to like something that I care about and that I'm passionate about that I you know did did get drawn to academically, um, but still through that kept feeling very disconnected and this opportunity came up to join a group uh, to go to Greece uh, during that time during March when there was a lot of uh, refugees crossing uh, crossing the sea from Turkey to the island of Lesbos so that is where I went on that trip was that's where we landed was the island of Lesbos in Greece and it was it was really intense, the exact timing of when, when I arrived there, because there had been volunteers and, you know, like Doctors Without Borders, United Nations, everything there for for months at that point, if you remember, like on the news, oh, see yeah. a lot of the uh, imagery and everything. And we arrived, I think, like mid-March. And that was when essentially all of the borders in Europe closed down was right when we arrived there. Which oh. meant that, and there was also when the European Union cut this deal with Turkey to send refugees back to Turkey. So it basically meant that I think at the time, like over 30,000 refugees got blocked in Greece, and many of them are still there in refugee camps today. From there, we like, we went to, we came back to Athens into the port of Piraeus, and uh, that's where, like, it kind of turned into another like makeshift refugee camp because so many people were all of a sudden stranded. They could no longer continue on their route to their to their um, destination that they were hoping to. A lot of them in Western Europe, in Austria, in Germany, to uh, to re uh, to reunite with family. they like husbands or sisters or or brothers and sons who had made it earlier. Many were, you know, trying to navigate through Europe to reach their families, mm-hmm. and uh, the countries who, that first closed their borders were more of the Eastern European countries: Macedonia on the border of Northern Greece, Hungary, and they were they were more they were just transit cities. Like from being there and talking to people and hearing people's stories and frustrations, like nobody wanted to stay in those countries because they knew that it was not uh, friendly for for refugees or for Migrants to to stay so they close their borders anyways to not allow that traffic to go through For uh, several reasons, but a lot of it because now we see since then that a lot of those governments have become very populist and right-wing And very anti-immigration and anti refugee. Yeah, so that is kind of that's how that's how and why I ended up (laughs) doing this uh, This volunteer trip to Greece during that time.
1: Yeah, and and it's 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 great to hear sort of like your experience on the ground of what it is because it's 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 not at all what we like see or hear that is portrayed in the media you know i I vividly recall the that image of that young boy on the beach that really made the rounds, and I think that came in even later, and so you know it's just like there's that disconnect and it's 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 something that you know is is quite you know. It happens day in day, like throughout a lot of topics, and especially in travel. You know, where you have a sort of idea of what a destination is like, but really, when you experience it, it's something different completely.
2: Yeah, it's that you brought up that little boy on the beach. Alain Curdy is his name, and that was the image that I saw. It was it was August two thousand fifteen.
1: Okay, and, so it was before. Yeah,
2: yeah it was just site like before, and that was like the big, like, kind of like I don't know, light bulb moment or like trigger in me that was sort of like a bit of like a wake up to the reality that that was going on. And I was in Turkey at the time I was in Istanbul. And it was, it was kind of like the first solo trip that I've ever taken to a place where I didn't know anybody else. And it was on my flight home that I saw it on my phone. The article come up with that image and it just like it stuck with me. And then when I came home, kept seeing more and more of it because that was the image that sparked international... Uh, awareness of awareness. What's going yeah. on, obviously, like the, the crisis in Syria and the, and the war started much before that. And that's, that is what then led me to start volunteering with that refugee, right? The refugee 613 in Ottawa, of just feeling like needing to get involved in some way. But yeah. Um, yeah.
1: yeah, not not to change the subject, uh, but
2: uh, brought up kind of like the reality of, of like media and and what was being portrayed. So that was a big realization when I was in Greece, you know, being there and seeing what multiple media outlets across the spectrum, across different countries, because they were all there, journalists mm-hmm. and would come like either come up to you or I'd see them go up to other people and it was really eye-opening that like they were already going there with the story that they wanted to tell. Yeah. And exactly. And it didn't matter like what you told them or, you know, what reality, what the reality was like, they, they were kind of just picking up pieces to like complete their story. And so it was very frustrating seeing the reality, which was not, which was not something that was being portrayed. And also that like, you know, I was there. I wouldn't say that I did like a lot. It was distributing clean, you know, clean and, and warm clothing and food most of the time. The most impactful part was actually like listening to people's stories and and how important that was for people to like just be listened to and have the ability to share, you know, like a group of young boys who um, had essentially like, almost like walked all the way from Afghanistan. Mm, And and to like the shores of Izmir in Turkey through like the mountains and everything, just to to escaping um, being recruited by the Taliban or that's incredible. yeah, a lot a lot of Afghan refugees actually at the time. A lot of the focus was on Syrian refugees, but a lot of Afghan refugees as well. Many of them young boys or young men who had worked with the U.S. military at the time, and now them and their families were being targeted for having done that, that. the U.S. had pulled out, just so many so many people that realized being there were just like you like this you could be that person and like seeing yourself in that person's shoes but then what you were seeing on the media was um like chaos and despair and being there it was not chaos and despair at all I mean in some ways but like it was just it was human life and human experience and a lot of a lot of most of the moments were actually quite beautiful and a lot of moments of like very deep human connection with with people that I, many of them I'm still in touch with today.
1: I, I'm happy you brought up that sort of like the media has those preconceived uh, narratives and sometimes they'll go and, and try to fetch imagery or storylines that fit that and you know correct me if I'm wrong but like a year like later maybe in 2017 you I think you end up going to Havana and have a, a similar experience. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah
2: so uh, yeah Um I was working still in the creative industries, but at this point I started working with like a different agency as a digital project manager. And I ended up in Havana on a very like spontaneous trip. I was in Miami at the time for a real estate conference with my partner at the time who who was working in real estate. So I went with him just to check out Miami and just, I think it just was like, we didn't really plan this trip at all, which is kind of like, which is not something that was normal for me. Like, I like to at least like plan some sort of structure to know the place that I'm going into, like make na- cool neighborhoods and stuff. But we didn't really do that for this because it was more of a business trip. And we just didn't really love Miami very much, to be honest. <laughs> with we were so close to Cuba and Havana, and we were like, okay, we're so close, like let's go. And at the time it was when um, tra- Obama was still at, was still in office and travel had just opened up. And was really there was like flights from from U.S. cities to, to Havana. So we went to Havana and but again, like had nothing planned other than an Airbnb booked in, in central Havana and were dropped in Havana with no idea of like where we were, where we were going. And then got there and realized like, oh, you can't just turn on Google here. And like search uh, like the nearest restaurant, and you like because the only place to get internet is in, was in these like uh, Wi-Fi hotspots throughout the city, and you had to like get a card to connect, like very minimal access and super old school that way. So we started walking around um, Havana to like check it out, and instantly could just like feel how we were being like pulled and gravitated by this like invisible strange force into like what was clearly like a tourist hotspot, like circuit. And that those first, I think it was like the first like eight to 10 hours that we were there. I was, I could feel it like that we were in that. And what we were experiencing was kind of this like amusement park type of environment of Havana and knowing that, but having, zero idea how to like get out of it how to like see people like where do people really live like what is the actual reality because that's the type of travel that i was always used to Mm -hmm. like a much more local experience um and like getting to know people or like i would spend a time beforehand in like my personal travels Uh, looking for like kind of like obscure local blogs to like get a sense of like the local culture and underground music scenes and arts and things like that did not clearly have that available there and there was a a, that evening or maybe I don't even I don't recall exactly anymore we were only there for three or four days that evening or the next evening we were walking around and and heard like good music coming from a rooftop and looked up and was like oh that place looks kind of cool and like sort of hidden so we like found the door that like led you up and it was this like super hip yeah very like cool vibe place and full of like locals but also like but also people who were um who are travelers but you mm-hmm. tell all like all of a sudden like oh this is different from like all the places on the street that every single one of them are playing Buena Vista social club and, <laughs> you know So then we sat down and we happened to sit down beside this couple and we, my partner and I were just like talking or had ordered some drinks and we ended up, we started talking to them. I think either they asked us where we were from or vice versa. And yeah, they were after a while of just kind of chatting. uh, So he, the man uh, was uh, Cuban and she was Norwegian, but had, but had been located in Havana for many years. So she was living there. Mm -hmm. And they were like, you know, like, I really wish that, like, more travelers and more tourists that come here, like, would take the opportunity to just talk to locals and not be so afraid of, like, having a conversation because, like, you know, you being here in this place and, like, having this conversation with us, like, now we can share with you, like, all of these cool things that are happening in Havana. There's, like, an incredible music scene Uh, like incredible art scene, there's something going on, like a concert, this or that, every single day. But like the experience that tourists are getting basically like down there or like out there is not like the real Havana right now. And that interaction, and that experience sort of like then shifted and changed the remainder of our time there, which was really short. But that night when we left and walked back to our Airbnb, I was just like, it kind of, I just started thinking about that, about like, for the first time ever, because this was really the first time that I had experienced a super mass tourism type experience of being a traveler and a tourist. And it was kind of eye opening to me to realize that, oh, I don't think the way that I've been traveling is how most people travel or is not, it's not that normal. Having kind of just had this like duality experience all at once um, in Havana then. And I just kept thinking about that, about like the role of the travel industry, about how mass tourism kind of like you know sort of like sets its own agenda a little bit of like how they want to control the tourist experience and the narrative and everything because it's uh, it's safe it's safe that way you know what to expect they know mm-hmm. what to expect of the tourist and they keep you in this like literally it's like a circuit
3: yeah
2: bubble hard to get out of it um, because you need to have a certain level of like confidence to step outside of your comfort zone to do that and whenever it's curated for you to not have to do that it's difficult to step outside of it yeah
1: and yeah i'm i'm totally biased because like everything you said is is exactly the way i want to travel and the 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 sort of you know what i have in my mind of cuba is just a lot of people going to these their bubbles and these all-inclusives and then they, they do that, that one day trip to Havana and then maybe another day trip to an UNESCO site, but they're they're still in their bubble mm-hmm. and they don't they don't mingle and, and and you're totally right. Like it's you know, there's something that's lost there, an opportunity in a way.
2: Yeah. And for for Havana and Cuba specifically, like that's how the travel industry what or the tourism industry was specifically and intentionally created as well by the government when uh, after the special period in the '90s, when after the Soviet Union pulled out and they lost all of their economic support essentially internationally, and there was the embargo as well. So Cuba went through an extremely difficult period in the '90s called the special period. And as a way for the government to bring in money and resources into the country, they opened up tourism. Mm-hmm. And but did that, and that's why you have the all-inclusive resorts, Veradero, all of them, uh, were created and built to to bring tourism tourism in, but to keep travelers, to keep tourists from other countries in a specific part where like they could still control it. And for a long time, um, Cubans were not even allowed to interact with tourists. Mm-hmm. So it so that is how it was started and created, and that and that you can see how it's still influencing the current reality because that's what it's grown from. And then obviously, like other companies have come in and partnered with the government, uh, like large mass tourism companies and such, and they've sort of made, they've maintained that structure a little bit,
1: mm-hmm. a lot. <laughs> And, and so after this trip, you go back, you fly back to Ottawa, or I guess you go back to Miami and then Ottawa. And I guess that, that was kind of your like aha moment. Like, maybe there's something here. Maybe I, I want to create like a travel company or like, yeah. was, it, was it like an idea that took hold of you and you're like, you could not not think about it basically?
2: Kind of. It was just it was something in general that I just couldn't stop thinking about was that experience in Havana. And initially it was like it was more that I need to go back there and like discover and see and understand more of it because I it was so like still on the surface of what I did get to experience. But like, I don't know, it was just a very, very strong connection for me even those three, three, four days that we were there, there was like a familiarity with it. There was like a mystery to it where like I knew, and I could see that there was so much more below the surface, but didn't have the time or was not prepared um, to do that. So kind of more just started with this, with this wanting to, to find out. but then I kept thinking more about that, the that, what I was just describing about like the tourism industry there. And from that, there was a day where I had I had come home from work from working at the agency and I was at home by myself and I had like all of these like I don't know ideas come to me that like weren't really making sense but I started writing them down my partner came home and I was like I need to start a travel company. <laughs> and then I like told him all of my ideas that were like flowing through me and he's like yeah. That's exactly what you should be doing. <laughs> and I was like, "Really?" And then I spent like the next few months um, while I was I was also working at I've always worked in the in the in the food industry or food in in the restaurant industry since I was like in high school. So I was also working part time at a restaurant in Ottawa and then working full time at this design agency. So within whatever small periods of free time I had, including free time at work at the agency, I was uh, essentially doing like like discovery phase of like starting up a new company a new brand having no idea like what i was doing or what i was going into i was just i was fully led by this like opening in me that was it felt like a calling like no this is you need to you need to like pursue this whatever it is that this is you have to you have to listen to it
3: mm-hmm. and i did that
2: and and feel very fortunate that I was very supported by people around me including my boss at the design agency once I finally told them what I was up to when I asked him for time off to go to Cuba in September of that year uh, on a scouting trip and uh, he was like yeah okay yeah no it's exactly what you should be doing (laughs) And and my bosses too at the restaurant were super supportive and for the first year of Comuna after launching it I was I then quit the agency went Went back to serving and bartending full time at the restaurant so that I could essentially bootstrap the beginning of this uh, comuna, comuna mm-hmm. that I and, had to do at the time.
1: Yeah, and you, you mentioned these these scouting missions. What's what's a typical? I know you've done several since then, but what was like your typical scouting mission at the time? Like you were. You were out looking for these things that were not really that you wouldn't find in a guidebook, I suppose, or or like that. You know, the all-inclusive would not recommend. So, where where did you find them, and how did you how did you go about looking for them?
2: I think I feel like this is part of uh, what I learned in university was to be was to be a really good researcher, and I've always been really really good at using the internet and finding information, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But Instagram also was like my best friend with that. So I started using like the location tags of Havana specifically with Cuba when I went and like looking at other people's profiles and then coming across like locals. And then I started following them and reaching out to them and just basically like cold emailing or cold DMing a lot of people being like, Hey, like I just started this project coming to Havana or to Cuba to scout and to get to know like the local culture. I'm really folk want to focus on the local creative scenes and like really understand what uh, the, like the local reality of that, in- of, of like the creative spirit and vibrancy of the place is because that is What I'm interested in um, connecting the like travel experience to, and I mean it's no surprise that a lot of people were like, yeah, for sure, like come meet. And so then I would I set up like a few appointments with or meetups with a couple of people that I had come across in that way. Mm -hmm. You know, showed up at their doorsteps in in Havana and just had like these moments of like very intimate and and friendly interaction where they really connected with what you know this like vision of what i wanted to create and do and i was just like so blown away by by what they were doing um, to like preserve their culture and enhance it and and bring it into like a contemporary reality of their culture and from there there most people are like you know what you should like you should talk to this person and so it just became basically be, like immersing myself in the community that I that I wanted to to immerse other people in through a travel experience and through that created very strong relationships initially.
3: Yeah, and brought, you like,
2: know, from there and like the communities from these places and I formed very very close friendships with a lot of these people and pretty much every project that I collaborate with very nice.
1: I know you put a a video, like several videos together to sort of like showcase not just Havana, but Cuba. And I know it doesn't give it justice to these like very personal relationships that you have, but I, I think I think it's like a really pertinent thing. So for those who are listening on on the podcast, I'll share it in the uh, description so you guys can see it um, via uh, um, uh, ch- uh video channel. Going back to sort of, okay, so you did you do the scouting. now that's that's the first part you get like the, the experiences. Now, the, the next part is, is who do you share these with and who can you get to come with you on these trips? So how did you go about, like, what was the group size and, and how did you find, like, people who wanted to really experience sort of, Cuba the way that you wanted to showcase it?
2: Yeah, so I, all of the trips ever since we started doing trips with Comuna have been max, the, the largest group was 10 people. But I usually max it out at eight people to keep it very intimate and to be able to maintain the ability to have that like real intimate cross cultural exchange, um, so that people aren't like breaking off into little groups because the experiences that in curating are very intimate in like people's homes and studios. Um, and once you have too many people, it's really it's, it's it becomes more like you're you're observing. Uh, rather than like participating in the experience. Mm -hmm. But the the very first trip was with friends. It was my partner and it was friends that came, a friend who's a photographer, a friend who's a videographer, Zara actually, who created that video from a a lot of footage that she took on that trip. And they came as though they were coming and they were like coming on a travel trip as my clients and paid for it in the same way so that I could see like how this would work out because again like, i didn't know what i was doing yeah so it was great to be able to do the first one with people that i already knew who trusted me and yeah. I, you know and vice versa but instagram definitely was like was the number one uh channel of like inbound marketing that i use and that i still use a lot for so a lot of new new travelers who have found home most of them have been through instagram or right. afterwards, like someone else has been on a trip, and then word of mouth, essentially. And I've done a couple of also collaborative trips, which like through through their networks, then someone else found out. But again, still very much uh, focused on on Instagram and building the community through through that as a platform.
1: Right, and then like leading on from this, like that that the trip worked out, and so then you decided to you know expand. I know you've you've added. Uh, Mexico and Romania. I particularly wanted to talk a bit about Mexico. What what made you decide on Mexico specifically?
2: Everything has has just been very not everything that I've done. Like I haven't really premeditated it that part. Of France. I've just
3: trusted <laughs> where
2: this path and this direction has been taking me. But I I ended up going to Mexico because one of my best friends who is a really amazing artist from Ottawa. Her name's Whitney Lewis-Smith. She has a strong connection to the to the art scene in Mexico, Mexico City in particular. So she creates a lot of her art and produces it in Mexico and would then come back to Ottawa and was constantly back and forth. And when I started Comuna Travel, she was the one that was like, I'm going to Mexico City to work on this big project uh, with this studio there i really think you should come with me i really think that like you need to go to mexico city and again i was like okay yeah i'll come <laughs> <laughs> feels right i'll come and i went to mexico city with her for a week fell in love with it and again it was a, another moment of the reality of what mexico city is which is this incredibly like vibrant electric dynamic contemporary innovative city but so much of what you know now has become very popular in the last two to three years as a, as a travel destination. But even then a lot of people's perception on Mexico City when I told them that that's where I was going that's where I was going to do as like the next destination for Comuna, they were like, ooh, like, are you sure? Like, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's dangerous there. Like, what do you think people will think? Like, don't you think it'll be hard to like get people to want to travel to Mexico City? and i saw that as a challenge like challenge accepted because that is not what mexico city is it has such a much like richer story than that that is not the only story of mexico city and it's actually kind of like a very a small and like outdated story of it so that is what drew me to mexico city first and then from there i just developed this very strong connection to mexico and the and the diversity of the culture there its history And ended up starting to spend a lot more time there myself, doing many more scouting trips outside of Mexico City that brought me to Oaxaca and to several other states throughout Mexico, many of them in very uh, remote areas of Mexico, as I have to thank friends that I made there Mm -hmm. um, who brought me to these places, to La Sierra Gorda, and to San Luis Potosi and a lot of places that are that are still very connected to their indigenous cultures and their indigenous roots where that i i became very intrigued by and I felt it was important to to learn more and to and to become more connected to those cultural roots of Mexico and yeah it's just been like a love story ever since then <laughs> with Mexico in particular
1: yeah. Yeah, and, and Oaxaca has, has the largest percentage of indigenous peoples in Mexico, I think, from all the, the federal states. And it it sort of has like a special place for you. Like, what are the, some of the experiences that really, like, you went on these scouting trips and, and you're like, oh, my God, like, I, you know, I have to share this to others. And what were these things that, you know. Did did you start noticing some transforming experiences once you had people sort of like experience the, the same things that you experienced in these communities specifically?
2: Yeah. So with Oaxaca, I went I went to Oaxaca for myself as a personal as a personal trip because I was I wanted to go to Oaxaca. But then it also became a scouting every pretty much like every trip that I take becomes a scouting trip in a way. <laughs> Yeah, essentially, like if I connect with a place and 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 feel that there's like something very special, which pretty much everywhere in the world is that I've had that experience, I then become very connected with it. And there aren't that many place countries in the world actually that I that I've traveled to because I continue going back to the same places. I. Form, like very like strong connections with places and it makes me want to find, to like learn more and become more immersed in it so I keep returning back and Mexico has been a place like that Cuba became that from like my first interaction with it Romania has been that obviously my entire life but I ended up in in Oaxaca and it it's the state of Mexico with the most amount of indigenous people by population so that is just you see it in every part of the culture today. It has it has preserved its indigenous culture so incredibly well, and it is really a very it's a sacred place. Oaxaca. You can feel the energy of it because of of how deep those those cultural indigenous roots remain, and there are so many things that are just part of like people's everyday lives and. Oaxaca, in particular, is very special because there are so many different dialects of indigenous languages that are still spoken there. I believe, like over fifty, there's around over fifty percent of the population that don't even speak Spanish. They, yeah. Or English. Yeah, and like
1: Zapotec or Mixtec, yeah, they, they speak other languages. Yeah, yeah,
2: and even within like the Zapotec indigenous language or or Mixtec, there are so many dialects. Yeah. In it that you will have like neighboring villages where, you know, villages that are very close proximity to each other and the dialects are so different that they won't really understand each other. Mm -hmm. That's a reality within it. So they maintain their cultural connect, their connection to those roots very well. And part of it is because of the rugged and remote terrain of Oaxaca. There's like, there's the central valley where there's Oaxaca city, which is the most popular place for tourism and everything. And it's like the commercial center in the state but then once you start to go outside of the central valley you're essentially going into mountains so if you want to get oaxaca borders the pacific ocean so if you want to get to the oaxacan coast you have to go through the sierra sort of the southern mount, mountains to get to the coast and even in a car today it is quite the journey <laughs> you will you go through these serpentines through the mountains to get to the coast and then the Sierra, uh, the Sierra Norte, the northern mountains. Again, that's where you have uh, several, so many indigenous communities that are still very isolated.
1: So yeah, it's if- super remote, yeah. And, and even I think to even get to them, you have to sometimes pass through like drug lord territory. So it also has that level of potential dangerousness to uh, it as well. Quite safe. Okay, well, that, that's good to hear that because yeah. I read, read that Born to Run book and they, they were saying something completely different. Yeah, but, uh, well,
2: I guess from my experience, Oaxaca is, is a very safe state. That's, that's
1: great. I did have a specific question and we're going to touch on the subject a little bit later, but I think it's in one of these trips that you have your sort of uh, first curandera-led experience, like a ceremony. What was What was it that like for like the first time for you? specifically
2: when so i had already started doing because the trips that i do with comuna generally are very connected to like local creative cultures whether that's traditional or contemporary Mm -hmm. and the projects and the people and businesses and everything that i collaborate with the one thing is like determining factor to to collaborate with them is that what they're doing is in some way preserving or enhancing their culture and it can be like farmers or chefs or artists or musicians, or record labels, whatever, it's somehow, I then create these like little bridges between these different creative communities to show like a more like well-rounded, more rounded uh, reality of what the contemporary culture is like and how these people are using, you know, their ancestral culture to to enhance that and to lift it and to preserve it and like move forward for the current reality that we're living in. Mm -hmm. Um, so Oaxaca I did that with Oaxaca as well it became like an add-on trip during Dia de los Muertos at the end of uh, Day of the Dead at the end of October in Mexico uh, an add-on trip to a Mexico City trip that I was already doing a friend of mine Sarah very good friend of mine Sarah who I know from Ottawa we worked at the restaurant that I worked that was working at when I started Comuna together and it was sort of like her side job as well and she's a natural healthcare practitioner, and through you know, like the web of communities and connections and everything, some uh, her mentor essentially who um, has deep roots to Oaxaca. Her name's Madeline, and who had done an ex- who had led an experience with people from Canada to Oaxaca, specifically very focused on like spirituality. Mm-hmm. Uh, traditional medicine reached out to Sarah and said, "Look, like this is not what I do as a living, but it's an experience that is very profound, and I would like for you know this relationship that has been started to continue evolving. But I just like I can't do it. She's a little bit older. I think she had just had hip surgery as well, and realized that it's a lot of work to be to like be bringing people." on uh, on travel experiences and guiding that so to speak and so she contacted Sarah and asked Sarah if Sarah would uh, like to basically like take it over and then Sarah contacted me (laughs) and said was this something that you'd be interested in doing I know it's a little bit different from the types of trips that you create but if it is something that you're interested in let me know and it's Again, like synchronicity. Exactly the day that she called me, I was at a cottage with with girlfriends and I hadn't seen them in a long time because I was I was traveling so much back and forth. So I was like telling them about my most recent experiences in Mexico. I had done this really big like three week trip throughout several states, a lot of it in in, in different indigenous areas and lands of Mexico. Mm-hmm. And I was telling them how I really wanted to spend a lot more time connecting these communities and learning from them, and maybe not even it's, find a way to incorporate these communities in in the trip in the trips and like in a very sustainable tourism regener regenerative way. And that day, as I'm having this conversation with my friend, Sarah calls me to ask me this, if I want to partner with her to do a spiritual retreat to Oaxaca, connected to the indigenous communities and indigenous traditional medicine and curanderas, healers that are um, primarily women in Oaxaca. And in that moment, I was like, yeah, I don't need to hear more because this is like way too synchronous yeah. <laughs> to even question what is going on here? Like, are you yeah. serious? So that is how I became connected to that. And so um, after I said yes to this adventure, I I already had a trip planned uh, at the end of at the end of that year. I'm trying. I'm like losing track of what year we're in. I think,
1: 2019. I think we're 2019. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say 2019.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, that was 2019 to Mexico City with an add on to Oaxaca.
1: Mm-hmm
2: during the time of Dia de los Muertos, and I said to Sarah, well, why don't you come with me to Mexico, like meet me in Oaxaca, and we will go and do it like how I do this, experience it all ourselves first, and connect with these communities, become immersed in them, learn from them, create a report, and then from there, we can decide if it's, if it feels right, uh, from both ends, for us to do this retreat, which was then supposed to be in February of 2020, which it was, and we went, uh, Sarah met me in Mexico and we went to, uh, Oaxaca and the, so our connection to these communities in Oaxaca is through a company called Tierra Sagrada and Tierra Ventura, and it's founded by, by Claudia Shore and her husband, Eve, They have been settled in Oaxaca for the past 23 years, I believe. She's German, he's Swiss. And they started a a company called Tierra Ventura, um, an ecotourism company in Oaxaca. And they became very connected to uh, indigenous communities of Oaxaca through what they were doing as ecotourism. And so they are the ones that that were our guides and our bridge into these communities and into mm-hmm. the world of, of traditional indigenous medicine. And through that, the women who are leading it for the most part are the elders of these communities and many of them are Kodanderas.
1: Mm-hmm. And so it, it's like, it, it's so unfortunate that, you know, you do the scouting mission in early 2020 and then the pandemic hits, but instead of just like being like, ugh. Retreat in early
2: 2020. So we did the starting one at the end of 2019 and then we did
1: the first retreat in did the first retreat, yeah. And then, and then I think you, after, so before the pandemic had, I think you had another one planned again in the same region, if, if I'm correct. And then, and then sort of the pandemic hits, but instead of like, you know, just like putting the whole thing on hold, uh, you actually decide to sort of, you know, migrate to, uh, I think what you call the, the kumuna project. Yeah. And uh, you begin organizing online sessions and, and, you know, I call them the, cause I got to meet them and, and I call them the ceremonial dream team, but you have, uh, you have you, you have Sarah, you have Claudia, and then you have um, these curanderas like Lorena and, and, and Sonia and, and others. And it's like, you had everything there. And, and now you just had to do the research of like, the platforms and stuff. I have so many questions, but like the first one is what, what made you think, Hey, you know what, these healing ceremonies, if I, if I bring them online and and sort of do something, this might actually be, there might be something there.
2: Yeah. It wasn't uh, something that, that came up instantly, but (laughs) the retreat and it was so profound and incredible. Um, in February, 2020, and then came home and there was a global pandemic and everything changed. Uh, This was supposed to be, 2020 was supposed to be the year that I added more countries and more travel and more experiences and everything. And it fully shut down the entire project, the entire company. And I kind of just, I listened to that. And I decided from the beginning that, you know what, I'm going to honor what this is, this great pause. There's clearly like a calling from, a, from the world, from, you know, the universe that we need to slow down and we need to take a moment to really listen to like what is going on in the world and how we're showing up in it, in the reality of our relationship to the environment and everything. So I just, I canceled everything immediately, all of the trips that were planned for the rest of 2020 without no, you know, at first it's everyone was saying it'll be a few weeks or it'll be four weeks, it'll be just a couple months. But I just had this like, Intuitive knowing that that wasn't real, mm. that this is, was going to be our reality for a while. So I canceled everything for 2020 and just had this mindset of slowing down and grounding into home and listening and kind of like taking stock of everything that I had done up until this point, everything that I had learned, these amazing communities that had opened up so much of their homes and their culture and their projects to me and to other people who I, who I brought on the trips up until then. And I spent like a few months last summer, just kind of not doing anything other than, you know, meditating, doing a lot of like inner work because I, I couldn't work really. Um, And in that this experience that we had on retreat in February in Oaxaca, remained as like a grounding as a as like a grounding anchor throughout the last year because of what uh, was introduced to us, what the conversations that we had, the this like very extremely profound and potent experience was what I kept going back to in moments when when the reality of of what this past year has been were, became very difficult. Mm-hmm. And in that Sarah and Claudia and I have maintained contact. I maintain contact with, with most of the people that I work with as much as I can. But in that kind of a conversation of, do you think we could do this as, this is many months later, like in August sort of of, of 2020, have this conversation of, do you think we could do this in like some sort of virtual setting, more so for us to like remain connected with each other and to like, continue building community in some way that's been like a big focus for me since the pandemic hit of, okay, well, I can't do the travel trips, what can I do? And it's been very focused on continuing to try and build community in different ways, however I can and focusing on what I can control and the very small pockets of places where I can do something rather than looking at it from what I was used to from like a very global perspective, it became a lot more local. Mm-hmm. In that conversation, we said let's just try and see what happens because what do you have to lose, anyways. And we kind of, you know, had an idea, planned it out. Claudia and Eve recorded these amazing videos from from Oaxaca, from their environment, and we offered it. We put it online. It sold out within like it was fully booked within a few days, and it was, uh you know, kind of like a message that okay, well. It's clear that what people need right now, you, you can't travel and it's not a good idea to travel right now, but what people need is um, connection and they mm-hmm. need community and they need tools to help them stay grounded and to be able to thrive and to do their best where they can to get through the, the, a lot of the difficulty that we're all experiencing on very different levels um right now and to and with that it then it then helps you like kind of go inward a little bit to see okay where am I struggling a little bit what can I do to like help myself and then in that how can I now support my community because I'm coming from this from a very grounded place. So a lot of the focus of these online sessions that we created for the ceremonia sessions has been to introduce people to the indigenous knowledge of Oaxaca through traditional medicine and traditional wisdom and healing modalities uh, that are very simple, but they're all sort of connected to reconnecting to our environment, reconnecting to ourselves and looking at like the healing process as an inward, as an inward journey that then reflects in the outward. I think it's so much in the world. We're trying to, and we're so bombarded with like information and everything that you can see why this is the case, but we're trying to change and sort of like fix things outside of ourselves. We're trying to fix the environment. We're trying to fix our political systems, our institutions, you know, everything is out there. And that's the problem, even within my communities and uh, a lot of the conversations that I've been having this, we've been having this year. But until we start to look inside of ourselves first and heal ourselves individually and listen to our emotions, listen to you know, the discomforts that, that life is creating for us, it's going to be very difficult for all of the things that we're doing to try to make the world a better place for them to be able to actually like land or stick anywhere or influence anyone, unless you're doing the work yourself. You know, everything, we're a microcosm of the ma- macrocosm.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: the There's the very old ancient, quote by Hermes, of as above, so below, as within, so without, as a universal, the soul. And that is a very, very uh, universal knowing of a lot of indigenous and, and ancient wisdom that mm-hmm. if, you, if you want the future to not be what it is right now, you have to start with yourself. You then it kind of ripples out into your circle of people around you, then that ripples out into your community. And then that ripple will eventually become a wave that will change, that will create the change that that you would like to see in the world. Also yeah. Bondi said.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's good. You got all your quotes out for, uh, for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they are good ones. And I think, you know, I, I've, you know, full disclosure to, to the people listening, I've uh, I've been in two of these sessions already. And that second session really, you know, uh, Sarah had done a guided meditation and then it was followed by a ceremony that was you know, led by Lorena and, and, and Claudia who was there to translate. And it was, you know, some of these personal touches you added were just like, you know, it really well, this, you know, you made a care package. I don't know if people can see right now, but like, it has like, you know, this little handwritten note and like, you know, there's like a little post-it there's like beeswax. There's, I think there's like flowers from your dad's garden in Romania. I, I mean like what, like, how did you go about thinking about this and that actually you know adding these things could really you know really help people opening it up and and not even that just healing over you know a zoom meeting which is not something you hear every day and it's it's i i felt it and it's 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 quite powerful
2: that's well it's amazing to hear i've also been feeling and experiencing it myself facilitating it alongside sarah and claudia and lorena it's been for all of us it's been a p- very amazing beautiful surprise to see that you can move energy through a screen through mm-hmm. technology in this way and that you can create community in this way and that you can like really connect emotionally and intimately like this but the so the box, which is what you're really asking about. <laughs> when we were stuck, when, we when we were like, okay, how do we do this, and how do we make it special, and not just you know someone staring at a Zoom screen, mm-hmm. serving uh, instruction. And so you know, part of it was, well, it's important to like bring people into the environment so that they can get a sense of what, what Oaxaca is like, the terrain, the environment, the mountains, the the flora, which became a part of the videos that were recorded beforehand. Mm -hmm. And we decided to create this ceremony because the focus is on ceremony, creating ceremony into your daily life and ritual into your daily life as a very simple but powerful tool to stay grounded and connected to yourself and uh, your, your environment, wherever it is that you find yourself right now. And so we decided to make this little the ceremony bundle that you just showed. And we also wanted to emphasize that you don't need to travel somewhere super far away to Mexico or to Peru or whatever to have to have these very like transformative experiences. You can also, re- you can do that in your everyday life. And you also don't have to kind of like give in to what the, the wellness industry is really like selling that, like you need to use sage and this and that. And so a lot of the box is created in a sense of like, what is up from like our current environment. So Sarah is, um, spends time on a regenerative farm in Ottawa, where she is, you know, is cultivating and learning regenerative farming practices. So a lot of the items in like this much I have it here in like the smokestick, it's like cedar from her backyard. It's um, sage, it's not white sage, it's sage that are from uh, the, her garden. And so everything is, it's like this physical reminder to people that wherever you are is, is sacred. And mm-hmm. to, have, uh, to create a connection with the things that you are that you were incorporating into your life and ritual and ceremony but it was also a way to connect everyone everyone received that is participating sessions receives the box yeah they receive the same thing and so we encourage them to use it as a way to like connect with what it is that they're being shown over zoom during our ceremonia sessions together you know like everyone receives a red protective bracelet which is used in many cultures around the world in kabbalah and in Eastern Orthodox religion—it's a way of like protecting from the evil eye. If you're working with like your own energy and like becoming more open, then it's a way to like protect yourself from from a lot of these cultural beliefs. And it's also a way to connect everyone. Like when I look at this, I think of every single person that is doing this four-week virtual ceremony with me. And you're mm-hmm. wearing it
1: too. <laughs> I'm wearing mine. Yeah, of course. I, I put it on as soon as yeah. I got it in the mail. And it was, it was nice to receive also something from Sarah that I actually had never met before. And it was like super personal yeah. and now I'm going to sound super North American, but the smell that comes from these herbs is just absolutely phenomenal. I hope it's okay. I'm going to, I'm going to light mine up and, and, uh, you know, partake here. Uh, I hope that's, that's cool with you.
2: <laughs> I lit mine earlier at the beginning of, okay. of the podcast. To uh, clear the air.
1: <laughs> I mean it, it, it does have like a very like, you know, healing, you know, it it it, it makes you feel good and calm and, and centered and you know, it has like I think people just like, you know, we we've thought to not think about it for so long that like we've kind of forgot about it. But it really does have some some a power on us and it, it, it yeah. makes us feel better and more connected. And I, I'm really glad that, you know, you've made me like you're you're teaching us about this. And and it's 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 so cool. It's really cool. I'm really glad that you did that. <laughs> I've been having a great
2: experience in the ceremonia session.
1: Yeah. Uh, I know like one of the tools that you use for, for these sessions is called community. What's your what's your take on it so far? And you know, on, on that question as well, you know, because we're dwindling down towards the end of the podcast here, but what, what tools do you think you would be that you would recommend for other people or other entrepreneurs that kind of want to do something similar to Comuna?
2: So I think the tool that you're referring to is the community space. Yeah, that's right. So that's a platform called Mighty Network, and it's a platform where you can build out your own community within their platform.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So uh, yeah, I, I it is something that's n- that's new. This transition from Comuna Travel to the Comuna Project, mm-hmm. but it's also something that I've been thinking about for a long time. I just never have any time. <laughs> You know, going from one place and leaving another trip to like fully focus on it. But a big part of it is also making cultural exchange more accessible to more people. Knowing I always knew from the beginning that it wasn't it wasn't really about travel. It was more about creating experiences where people can open up and step outside of their comfort zones and also have the ability and the space to interact with other cultures in a very intimate way and actually have that exchange happening that leads to inspiration, leads to a relationship, leads to, you know, further something longer and like change down the road. But I also always knew that travel is very, it's a privilege. It's such a privilege. It's a great privilege to be able to travel and have these experiences, but it's only available to a very small amount of people for whatever reasons, a lot of it financial, a lot of it time constraint. Mm-hmm. And I, it, for like I, the a year before the pandemic hit, I kept having this this thought process happening within as I was growing the travel experiences that I would like to create more of a digital platform to create more of these offerings online. And hopefully it lead to more of a focus on like on education and hopefully like involve like youth cultural exchange opportunities as well. So the community space is kind of like the beginning of that of as a result of this pandemic and and the time that it has allowed because of it, um, I finally have the time to actually start focusing on that a little bit more. And it's something that I'm actually very excited about being able to, to grow. It started with, it's starting with the ceremonia sessions, but I would like to do more things with it. I think there's a really great opportunity in that and in using technology in, in a positive way to continue connecting people as I'm seeing and you're experiencing um, and we're learning that you can use it in a way that still feels intimate and still feels personal and and is immersive.
1: Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more like on the immersiveness. I was like genuinely very surprised. And especially after like so many months of being just like online meetings, online conferences and everything. This was like a very personal thing. And, and also hearing some of the participants open up and, and just like feeling safe and doing that, it was like, you know, it it reminded me of like some of the first group meditations I've ever done in in real, like in, in with uh, with people around me. But this was like all via you know computer screen. It's it's really cool. I have just one more question, <laughs> but uh, I'm really glad and really happy to hear that that this online community is something that you're going to continue to work on. But my my last question is: once this pandemic is over, are you going to return to that the sort of travel part of Kumuna? And if so, what's uh, what do you think is going to be the next destination?
2: <laughs> good question <laughs> I don't, yeah well obviously nobody knows what the what the future is i think that travel will open up and it'll open up in a different way before i answer that question i again i didn't really like fully answer your question about the tools i think oh right
1: sorry yes
2: you to continue to to look at technology ways that you can amplify it and maybe and see how you can like make the most of it and think of it outside the box of what it's you know like we're using zoom for these virtual sessions but we're also using like videos recorded in oaxaca to bring people into like a more immersive state and things like that and like these boxes are a way to connect people in a different way of like kind of connecting like technology with more like tangible things within if you're trying to do like more experience-based stuff to connect Mm -hmm. people And another aspect of just in travel as well, it's not really a tool, but a mindset would be to always have an open mind and always be humble in that you don't know, you don't know everything. I think that in the travel industry, especially, and especially like a very like traditional, it's a very like outdated industry and in most parts or has been up until now where People kind of think that like they already they know everything about a culture when they're bringing guiding people into it. And I would say that my biggest advice that I hope people would take uh, into consideration is is to remember that you don't know everything and that there's always something more to learn mm-hmm. and that, you know, what we know or we think we know about people or cultures and different realities around the world is, is still very small and we still have so much that we can learn from each other if we keep an open mind I'm still learning like I there's such there's such a little fraction of what I know of all these places including my own culture mm-hmm. I'm just, even when I went back to Romania now like it's I still blown away by how much I don't know <laughs> and it's always a good reminder of that. With travel particularly, yes, I, Comuna travel will remain as uh, as a company underneath the Comuna project. Evolving in this way, I think, is just allowing more more space for more things to evolve. Uh, and digital platform is one of them and doing uh, immersive virtual cultural exchange experiences. But I'd also like to incorporate events when we can gather in person again. And uh, like facilitation workshops, things closer to home in Canada, in Montreal, and I would love to connect when they open up again because a lot of these communities are closed off in BC. But with Indigenous communities in BC and young entrepreneurs and uh, networks within uh, within Canada that are doing really amazing things in Indigenous tourism and sustainability and regenerative practices, and by kind of creating a larger umbrella as the Comuna project. I hope to be able to bring more collaboration together to do uh, community building across cultures and communities.
1: That's awesome. Iwana. thank you so much for coming on the pod. It was so great to hear everything you had to say and share. And I guess the the best way for people to, to learn a bit more is to go on your website, is that correct?
2: Yeah, you can go to komonaproject.com and you can check us out on Instagram at the Comuna Project. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram, niwana.todosia. I love connecting with people and hearing from anyone.
1: <laughs> Great. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you so much for bringing such a sense of community and connectivity in this age where we really need it. Um, I know I appreciate it personally and, and I hope others will... We'll get to experience it the same way i have so far or in a different way but also good for themselves yeah. thank you so much thank you all right take You're care welcome.